I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 14. These last three chapters of our study are really dealing with the last hours of Jesus' life on this earth. In fact, we are in the last moments here as Passover week, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is now taking place. It's Passover time, which is obviously a significant uh, festival and holiday for the Jewish people. This means that people would be flocking to Jerusalem. The city would be crawling with people because the Jewish people would typically make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem uh, up to four times in a year, but trying to hit at least one of those. This is a big one. The city would be cram-packed with people. Everyone's going to be trying to sort out where are they going to observe Passover feast and meal. It's a big deal. The supplies are plentiful. They plan for this every year. To give you some perspective, this is a time when lambs are going to be sacrificed to the tune of over a quarter million lambs will be sacrificed in a single day in order to celebrate this um, Passover meal. In Mark chapter 14, verse 1, we see after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him, being Jesus, by trickery and put him to death. But they said, oh, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. The Sanhedrin council, the religious leaders are meeting in private. And their goal here is they want to figure out a way they can trap Jesus. And then they want to have him put to death. The problem is Jesus is very famous well-known, and has done some great things. They obviously, just a week ahead, had the time when Jesus rode into the city and, and people were singing Hosanna to the son of David and he was being anointed as a king. And so it would be quite dangerous for them to now try to do something here to Jesus in this moment. But there's things happening in the background that they didn't even know. Because in the background, what's happening is Jesus has been... Uh, in a home with some people who love him dearly. His disciples are around him as well. And this woman named Mary breaks open this bottle of perfume. It's very expensive. And anoints the feet of Jesus. And as Jesus describes, anointed him for his burial in advance. This perfume was super expensive. It was actually imported from India. So this would be very, very, very costly. And so as an incredible moment and scene of worship that takes place, but there's a disciple, one of the twelve, that was indignant, as the Scripture says, in this moment. It was Judas Iscariot. He was the keeper of the bag. He's the money man that, that as he traveled with the disciples, would have been the one who would collect resources and also go spend that money in order to take care of the team. But all the money flowed through his hands. Whenever he saw what happened here with Mary anointing Jesus like this, he said that money, that, that perfume should have been sold. And that money should have been taken and then given to the poor. And Scripture says it's because he was holding the bag that he had such an indignant attitude about it. But what was brewing in the heart of Judas was the covetousness of that money. And we know in uh, the book of Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. Though he has all the information, more information than most would have because he's been with Jesus now for three years. He has watched Jesus perform miracles. He's heard and seen, no question, this has to be the Messiah. He does not lack for information. 
He doesn't lack even the extended hand of grace from the Savior. Because Jesus has always extended the grace with him. But what he does lack is the heart of belief. And by faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't have that. But what he does have in his heart right now is he loves darkness rather than light because his deeds are evil. Jesus spoke of this in the book of John. He loved that money. It consumed his mind. And so now being an open vessel to be used by Satan because he's quite frankly very willing to be used because he's so indignant over this matter of money. Watch what happens in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. The Sanhedrin council needed someone who would pose as a witness, a signed witness, because the Roman law required it. They could never get Jesus brought into the Roman court without someone as the signature witness of the accusation. Judas played it perfect. Now when you step back from this whole scene and watch what just happened in the book of Mark, the Sanhedrin council, they desperately want Jesus put to death, but they were willing to push this back past the feast past the Passover. However, Jesus has an appointment with the cross. From the foundation of the world, the Savior was to be slain, and He is going to be the Passover. Jesus, our Passover, will be killed on that day. And so though they were willing to push it back, God was able to use the instrument even of evil in Judas' heart to expedite the timeliness that Jesus would ultimately be arrested and scourged and crucified at the exact moment it needed to happen. Judas was willing to sell Jesus out as a signature witness, but was given then 30 pieces of silver to do so. In verse 12 it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover." We learn from the book of Luke that it's Peter and John are the two disciples that went to prepare. Well, what does it mean they went to prepare? Well, obviously they found the guy who led them to the house, to the upper room, with the pitcher of water. Everything was just like Jesus said it would be. The preparation for this particular feast is very critical. It's a very busy day, somewhat like we could probably relate to with big holidays for us where you're scurrying around, guests are coming, you got to get everything just so-so. Well, there are certain things that are essential for this Passover meal to be, to be able to take place. These guys would go into a room and there would be a low, it's a low table. It's not a high table like you often see in those pictures where Jesus is sitting in the middle of the table and everybody's all upright in their big majestic chairs. No, it's not like that. They sit at this low table and everyone reclines actually down almost on floor level. And they, the way they would do, they would lean to their left and then their feet kind of back behind them. And so everybody's kind of leaned left the whole time. So they go in and make sure all the furnishings are set. But then there's so much else that has to happen. Because it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's time they have to purge this house of all leaven or yeast. 
So every vessel that would have ever contained it needs to be purged. And all that has to be uh, removed from the house. Because leaven throughout Scripture is seen as, as sin. A little, a little leaven leavens the lump, as is described in the text. Where you take a little bit of yeast and put it in the dough, and poof, it, it gets, becomes a big loaf of puffy bread and not just flat bread. A little leaven. Leaven is seen as sin, so it needs to be removed. Well, they would now take and have this water basin. You'd have to have the pitcher in the basin because during the feast, they're going to wash hands and feet more than once. This is very important. They would then have to go obtain all of the necessary supplies. They're going to need to get the herbs, the bitter herbs, the spices, the unleavened bread, and ultimately they need to get a lamb. So at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, they would go to the temple. If you don't have your own lamb and bringing your lamb with you, you could go to the temple and there obtain a lamb. They would then kill that lamb. The blood would be spilled and this blood would flow down this pipe, basically, or a reservoir to the altar and all of this blood, because a quarter million lambs are going to be sacrificed here. So there's a lot of blood that's going to flow They will then take this lamb and prepare it. Part of this lamb will actually be left at the the temple for all of the priests and the Levites and all the servants of the temple. And there's 3,000 of those. And so these guys are serving in there. But then you take home a portion of that as well. And that's what your family will observe the Passover feast with. So these guys will have gone and uh, obtained their lamb, bring home the part of the lamb in order to be able to observe this. And that's where now we pick up the story is the preparation. And now here comes Jesus. In verse 17, in the evening, he came with the 12. Then he said to them with fervent desire. Oh, sorry. In Luke chapter 22. Then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus says an interesting statement. With fervent desire, I've wanted to eat this with you. Well, he's probably observed this before. They've observed Passover in the previous years. But this is a unique one. Because this this particular Passover is the one where Jesus himself is going to offer himself as the lamb. But he's also going to institute a new covenant in this time. And so he has longed for this. It is the reason for which he came. The whole purpose and mission of Jesus was to come to this earth to pay the sin debt for mankind and be the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world. Now, as they would sit down to have this meal, there were steps to this and traditions, if we might. They would start with a benediction. There would also be the passing of the cup. There would be a time for them to uh, eat bitter herbs with the unleavened bread. They would pass the cup again. They would read Psalm 113 and 114 and then portions of 115 through 18 and actually sing those in a song. And those are psalms of deliverance talking about how God rescued them from Egypt and brought them out. Then there would be a time for passing the cup again. And then ultimately you get to the place of the Passover part where they're actually going to mix the meat and mix the meat with the unleavened bread and pass that around the table as well. So while all of this is happening, something that's important in these meals is also where everybody sits around that table. 
If you've ever traveled to an Asian country, it's almost like there's a pecking order to who sits where around the table. In this case, the master will sit in the center of the table. On the, if the table's long, he sits in the center of it. And the people to his right hand and to his left, first, first right, first left, are positions of honor. We learn from the book of John that John the Beloved is seated at his right hand because we know that they reclined left and his head was against Jesus' bosom. And he had the close earshot to be able to have private conversation with Jesus at the table. But there's a debate among the disciples for this order and how they're going to sit. Now, it's hard to wrap our head around this in light of everything Jesus has said. Leading up to this moment, he has told them over and over, guys, we're going to go into Jerusalem. I am going to be arrested. I am going to be crucified. And I'm going to raise again. And he's even told him now, with great desire, fervent desire, I've desired to have this Passover with you before I suffer. And while Jesus is focused, very focused on what's about to happen here, they're focused on who's the chiefest among them and where they're seated at the table. There's a great debate. This comes from, I believe, because they remember the conversation with Jesus back in, we can see this from Matthew 19, and let's see this conversation from previous so Jesus had said to them before, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Man, that's exciting. This is what they're anticipating. If this is our Messiah and they believe that He is, then He's going to establish His throne and we are going to then be the judges. So where we sit at this table, that really matters and they're having the big debate over who's most important here. Well, in Luke 22, just so you'll know that we can see this together. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Jesus will correct them in the subsequent verses. And in verse 27, he said, For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. You remember in this same time frame is when Jesus gets up from the table and takes off his robe, and now washes everybody's feet. And explains to them, what I have done to you, you do to one another. And it's by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. And love is manifested by the humble spirit of a servant. It's why we're reminded in Philippians chapter 2, it's a great text when it comes to personal relationships with people about what it looks like for us to honor and prefer and esteem each other and to value each other. And here's what happens in Philippians 2. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. But being in the likeness of man, he, he humbled himself and became as a servant. And was ultimately obedient, even unto death, the death of the cross. But the point is, let this mind be in us just like Jesus, that he was a, a humble servant. And Jesus gets up and settles the whole, the whole conflict by washing their feet. Now the seating arrangement, as I mentioned, was so important. John seated at his right hand. You know who's on his left? You think Peter, I bet. No. Judas Iscariot. 
This is so huge to understand the great grace of Jesus. If you miss this part of the message, you miss it all, is the incredible grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does He know in advance the reason why He came to this earth, and He knows the details, and operative in the background is the enemy trying to trap Jesus and put Him to death, and they're all messed up in their timeline, so Jesus is going to help them out here a little bit. And so now what happens? Jesus has got Judas Iscariot sitting right next to Him at the table in the place of honor. And in verse 18, it says, Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, One by one, is it I? And another said, Is it I? They go around that table and every one of them probably recognize they all have that potential to be the betrayer. And so they're wondering, what does Jesus know? Judas, I don't think, says much of anything. But at this point, mind you, Judas has already met with the Sanhedrin council and has already offered to be the signature witness to betray Jesus and has been given the money for it. And Jesus knows it. And Jesus still has him seated at his left hand, the place of honor. What grace. In chapter 14, verse 20, it says, And he answered and said to them, It's one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. Now, when we read this, we look at it and think, okay, this doesn't seem so complicated. How is it the disciples missed this? Because they didn't understand what happened. And we're all looking at it and thinking, okay, he takes this thing and he hands it and they dip it in the dish. He hands it to Judas Iscariot. How did they not all figure that out? Well, because at the feast, the master of that ceremony, so to speak, is going to hand each of them the bread. So it looks like this. He would take that unleavened bread and place the lamb in that unleavened bread. It's like a tortilla shell, soft tortilla. And he would place that in there, bitter herbs with it, and in the middle there would be the sop or the paste. It's like paste that's to remind Israel of the brick and mortar that was used and the, the masonry products used in order to make bricks back when they were in Egypt. So he would dip that in the sop and then hand it to the disciples, each one. Well, the first one to his left is Judas Iscariot. When that handoff takes place, the recipient would acknowledge their sin. They would also acknowledge the fact that the Messiah is to come, and when the Messiah comes, there's a promise, a proclamation is made that I will receive and follow the Messiah. So here's Judas sitting next to him in the seat of honor, and Jesus extends a hand of friendship and grace and hands him now this bread. And when Jesus, or when Judas received it, he took off. But what did Jesus tell him? In verse 21, Jesus had told him right before he leaves, he said, The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it's written of him, but woe to that man whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. In John 13, we learn a new piece here, and it says, Now after the piece of bread... Satan entered into him. And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. The disciples at the table didn't understand what just happened here, but after Jesus handed this to Judas, Judas gets up and leaves fast. The assumption is, because he was the keeper of the bag, Jesus sent him to go get other supplies, 
or to go make a, a donation or an offering unto the poor because that would be customary. But that wasn't what Judas was about to do. But Jesus knew it the whole time. Jesus extending a hand of grace one more time, Judas. Reminding Judas through this of acknowledgement of sin, acknowledgement of the Messiah whom he has been with this whole time. And now Judas says, no, thank you, and chooses instead to betray him. Why? Man, he loves that money. He's holding on to something that he values much more than the Savior. It's all the temporary gain that he thinks he's going to get. And we all know the rest of his story that he actually goes out and takes his own life. Judas never ends up being that signature witness they needed. And they had to obtain false witnesses then to finish the process. But what a sad state of affairs. That a man who has been with Jesus and has observed and seen and known the great grace of God and yet rejected it. But look at the great grace and kindness of Jesus. Though knowing that Judas had already done all these things, still extended to him the hand of kindness and friendship and quite frankly, extending the opportunity of repentance and salvation. Judas could never go into eternity with the excuse, I didn't know. No, he knew. So now Jesus does something here in this feast that is really spectacular. What has been done traditionally for Passover feast has now been complete. Judas is now taken and left. And we learn from the book of 1 Corinthians that Jesus Christ himself is our Passover sacrificed for us. What that means, if you're new to this terminology of Passover, real quickly, let me explain. 1,500 years before Jesus, the nation of Israel, God's people that he chose to bring the Messiah into this world, God's chosen people were in slavery in Egypt. And God had a plan to rescue them out. And after a sequence of plagues, the Pharaoh would not let them go. The leader of Egypt wouldn't let them go. And so God established one final plague. And it was the death of the firstborn in every home. And the way to avoid the death in your home would have been to apply the blood of a lamb on the side post and over the top of your door. Israel was warned. Everyone was warned. Those who by faith believed God and what he said was true would have taken a lamb, killed that lamb, and put the blood on their door. And that night, as the death angel would have come through and the firstborn were dying throughout the land of Egypt, if you had blood on your door, the Lord passed over and there was no death in that home. And God used that to be the rescue agent. The blood of the Lamb ultimately became the rescuer. It redeemed Egypt, or Israel out of Egypt. So they were taken now from slavery and redeemed from their slavery to be free people, to go to the place that God would have for them, the place of promise. And so for 1,500 years, Israel has observed this Passover every year at the same time. And so the details of the bread and the meat and the herbs and all these things are all spelled out very distinct and they followed this year by year. But it all was leading and pointing to something very specific and it was Jesus Himself. All of this truth and all of these rituals led to the fact that Jesus Himself, the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed to pay our sin debt for us. 
And he is our Passover. And this is what Jesus said. With, with this great fervor, I want to have this Passover meal with you. Because he now observes the Passover feast. But now something is going to change. He's going to take the everyday bread that is common. Bread with meals just like for us. Bread is common at a meal. Passing the cup, that's common at a meal. But he's going to take that which is common and now make it very special. And watch what he does here. In Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup when he had given thanks and he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant. Jesus is going to enter into the new covenant in just a few hours. He's going to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God and then raise again from the grave. But a new covenant will begin. Watch what happens, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There's a day coming when the Lord Himself will descend from the heavens and once again He will be on this planet ruling as the King of kings and Lord of lords and He will be once again drinking the fruit of the vine with the people. And then when they had sung a hymn, they then went out to the Mount of Olives. What just happened in that moment is Jesus now gave a new covenant and new ordinance. The Passover, as has has always been, is now going to come to an end. If you remember, so many things come to an end when Jesus died. You remember when He was crucified and He's up on the cross and the sky goes dark and the earth begins to shake and the veil of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom. And so normally, if you would have looked in and seen the altar that was in there in the mercy seat, you would have been dead. But that didn't happen. Why? Because now there's a, a new covenant was made in Christ Jesus through His body which was broken for us and His blood which was spilled. And now this new ordinance is not just for Jews only to observe. No, it's for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's why a day like today, now 2,000 years later since the resurrection of Christ, we gather together as the church and we are going to observe the Lord's table. Why? In remembrance of the Lord. In the same manner Israel would have observed the Passover in remembrance of being rescued from their slavery out of Egypt, we remember our Lord Jesus Christ rescuing us from our slavery to sin and that He gave Himself for us on the cross to pay our debt. And so in 1 Corinthians... The Apostle Paul, the great missionary, writes to this church of Corinth and he tells him, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We already know this. Many of us in this room have observed the Lord's table so many times in our lives. It's a day of remembrance. We take that which is common of bread and juice and now instead we focus our attention to the fact we remember the cross. 
And it's so significant for us because it causes us to remember the sin debt that was paid, the cost of our salvation. And then we celebrate that in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it it causes a place for us to remember and to be revived in the Lord, a place of renewal. It's a place of reassurance of the Lord's return, but also just the fact that I belong to Him. But in the like manner, there was a preparation for the Passover, of all the details, the furnishings and the, the juice and, and the lamb and all this stuff has to be prepared. Well, compared to that, the preparations for us with juice and bread is pretty simple. But the preparation of the heart sometimes is not. And so Paul gives this warning in 1 Corinthians 11 of the significance of what we are about to partake. In verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What does it mean to be unworthy? Well, to be unworthy is be not His. To receive the elements of bread and juice in remembrance of the Lord, if He's not your Savior, that's not worthy. When I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am called to then walk worthy of the vocation I've been called, meaning walk worthy of Christ. So I can also, even as a Christ follower, my manner of life could be unworthy because of the manner of sin. So here's what happens. If I know I've got sin going on in my life, when I come to the Lord's table, in light of the cross... In light of the payment that was made for me, I come before the Lord and confess my sin, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of my unrighteousness so that I come before the Lord in a worthy manner remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, today, if you're not a Christ follower yet, and you know God's working in your heart, but you've never come to the place in your life where you, by faith, called out to the Lord, said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I'm asking you to save me. And I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and I'm asking you, God, to save me. If you've never in your life by faith trusted Him to save you, this is your day. I pray this is your day. And then if not, I just warn you, don't eat the bread and drink the juice. If you're still wrestling with that and not sure about your salvation, it's okay. But I'm going to tell you, don't drink the juice and eat the bread. Because you're given warning in, in Scripture. Like man or as a Christ follower, if we're hiding bitterness in our soul, the sin's there, we know it, and we're not being honest about it. Before the Lord, this is a private matter between us and the Lord. But if there's things that need to be restored today before we observe bread and juice, then by all means, watch what the text says. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This is a big deal. It's not just bread and it's not just juice. It represents something that's so massive as the Lord Himself. We don't believe here in transubstantiation that this this bread somehow becomes God's body or this juice somehow becomes His blood. No, it's Welch's grape juice. I bought it last night. Dollar General, it's good. It's just representing something. And the little wafer crackers, they're not Jesus' body. They represent that for us to remember. 
And he said, for this reason, many are weak and sick, you, sick among you and many sleep. God puts a, a guard around in judgment around that table. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Because our Heavenly Father loves us. He knows how to chasten and correct out of grace. He knows exactly what He's doing. But gives us opportunities just like a day like today. Take and do a self-inventory. Let's take and go before the cross. And we take all of our life and take it right back to the foot of the cross. And remember what our Savior has done for us. And I think about all the details, and I know I've shared a lot of details today regarding this Passover meal that led ultimately to the Lord's table. To recognize the fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Lamb of God, gave Himself to be killed. Why? For you and me. We are dead in trespasses and sin. We had no way to save ourselves. We're hopeless. Condemned. Slaves. But in that, Jesus, out of great love, went to the cross to pay our sin debt so that we could be set free. My prayer this morning for every one of us in this room is that today we draw nigh to Jesus at the table. It may mean for some that this is the day you become a Christian. And that before we eat bread and drink juice together that by faith you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. And that is a private conversation between you and the Lord. But as Christ followers, the same. We come back before the Lord and contemplate our lives before Him. And yeah, it's a sober moment because somebody died for me and I'm not going to be cavalier about that. But it's such an encouraging time as well because we've been set free, people. As Jack said earlier, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We've been given life in Christ Jesus. New life. Life to share this great love of God with other people. This life that is no longer a slave to sin and, as a matter of fact, empowered to live victorious over sin. So we have no cause to sit and somber. Now it's all to celebrate with sobriety. I want you to bow your heads with me. I've asked our worship team to come up and help us prepare, but this is the moment. Instead of scurrying around the house to get the lamb ready, the unleavened bread ready, the herbs, the juice, let's do the inventory of our spiritual house. If today's your day to become a Christian, you say, this is it. Dwayne, I know it. I, I, the Lord's speaking into my heart right now. The Scripture teaches very plainly that when you call upon the name of the Lord... You'll be saved. Well, what do, I, what do I say? Well, the scripture teaches as well that for when we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we are saved. So what I'm confessing is, Jesus, you're the Lord.
and I'm asking you to be the Lord of my life. And we're confessing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And only Jesus is the Savior. And believing that He rose from the dead declares I believe that He also died for me. I want us all to just take a moment here to be still. Maybe you need to have, all of us need to have a conversation with the Lord. Maybe your conversation is to ask Him to save you. And maybe the conversation with the Lord right now is just to renew a clean heart before the Lord before we take this bread and drink this juice.